Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast where we explore the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University. Hello everyone, we are Salima Ramdani and Melanie Long, and we're third-year medical students at McGill University. I am joined today by Dr. Stephen Leibon, who is a pediatrician working in palliative care at the Montreal Children's Hospital. We'll be talking about the role of mindfulness in a trainee physician wellness when coping with grief and the role it can play in direct patient care. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, for sure. Good morning. Good morning. So we're going to start with the first part being the introduction. So the first question is, for those who may be less familiar with what you do outside of teaching, how would you describe what you do professionally at McGill? Um, so outside of teaching, like my clinical work is basically three aspects to it. One is I work, uh, my main work is really as a pediatric palliative care physician. So children with a high likelihood of dying or with very serious life-threatening illness. <clears throat> been doing that for like 25 years. And um, it's sort of the core clinical and academic work that I do. The second thing I do is I work on the wards as a general inpatient uh, pediatrician, like hospitalist. I only see kids that are sick enough to be hospitalized. Been doing that for a long time. I used to do ICU. I did an ICU fellowship and critical care at the children's. And then I worked as an intensivist for 10 years. And now I work on the wards instead of intensive care. And uh, well, then the rest of it's teaching. So that's really it for clinical. Wow, that's uh, fascinating. Thank you. Um, the second question is how do you define mindfulness? So let's take the next hour and get into this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, everybody wants a definition. Uh, you know, I've had people even sort of say to me, you know, what is it? What is it? <clears throat> and it's like anything else that's, uh, we've all experienced it. It's hard to put into words because words limit things, right? It's like, if I say to you, hey, Salima, tell me, uh, I've never tasted chocolate before. Tell me what it tastes like. You know, you can talk about the chemical structure of chocolate. You can tell me about theobromine. You can tell me about how it feels this and that. Will I really know what chocolate tastes like after you tell me? Will I know? You know, with somebody who's colorblind, would you be able to explain what the color yellow is to them? You know what yellow is. You're sure you know what it is, right? But how would you explain to somebody who, who's colorblind what yellow is? You know, so you do your best, but they still wouldn't have the experience. The so mindfulness is similar in that words sort of point to it but they don't they never there's they're not it's not the same thing as eating the piece of chocolate right the the, the nice part about mindfulness is it's not some rarefied experience that uh, you know you only have if you meditated for like a thousand hours and you reach some nirvana and you're floating off the ground and you're and it's a ceiling and you're like mindfulness no we all have moments of mindfulness that naturally occur so i think when i use words to try and explain what i think of it as is trying to tap into what everybody's felt moments of. And I, I've had my own natural moments. It's not like you have to practice meditation to feel mindfulness, but if you practice meditation, you'll have more moments of mindfulness. It's about more of what might arise naturally. Um, so just to give an example of a moment of mindfulness that I had, I was walking, this is just before I started, and I'll give the definition. <clears throat> I was walking, just on Sherbrooke Street actually, not just close to where I live, and I realized in a moment, I was having some, I was lost in thought. I love the expression lost in thought because to be mindful would be the opposite of that. 
you know, lost in thought is like you're in the shower and you're like, you're busy having an argument in your head with someone you argued with yesterday, but this time you're much smarter. You know, you're like telling exactly what the right things to say, right? And then you realize, I don't even remember, have I soaked up? Have I not soaked? Did I do my hair? I mean, you kind of remember, lost in thought and you forget what you're actually doing. But anyway, I was walking down the street and I was realizing that I was getting all emotional about something. And somehow in that moment, I was like, I'm doing this. Like nothing's happening. I'm just walking down the street. It was a beautiful spring day. And it's like, I'm making myself angry. And five minutes later, I'm making myself sad. 10 minutes later, I'm making myself happy. I'm like nothing. I'm just walking down the street. I'm creating all this stuff. In fact, I'm creating my life. I'm creating my life experience, right? It's a moment of, oh, I'm not my thoughts. I'm having thoughts. I de-identified naturally. We've all had moments where we're just sort of present. We just feel connected. And there isn't even a thought necessarily there. There are sometimes people describe them as flow states. You can argue whether it's the same thing. So a moment of just being completely present with what is happening right then and there, not thinking about it, but just feeling it. So that's like a natural moment of mindfulness. There's been many, there's many that come up. So how do I define it? I think there's a classic John Kabat-Zinn way, which is fine. There's all the ways are fine. It's more of a way to how to, that's more of a, practical how do you get there you know by paying attention in a particular way there's an awareness that emerges so it's an awareness that emerges what the heck is awareness you know it's consciousness like we're talking about the most difficult thing to define on the planet like neuroscientists have been saying like you know what is consciousness would robots with enough computer power be conscious we're talking about a state of consciousness so right away we're in murky territory we're like swimming in the weeds we don't really know what we're talking about because it's consciousness and yet and yet, for as difficult it is to describe, it's like the only thing we know, it's the only thing you guys know is actually happening. Like, Salima, this might be right now that you're in some matrix, and this is some computer-generated thing by some alien creatures that have created this whole thing, and I'm just a program, a subroutine running in a program, and you, you actually can't prove that it's not true, right? Maybe there's a God, maybe there isn't a God, you can't prove it. I mean, most people can't prove it. Let's just put it that way. So what do you really know? You, you, you re what do you really know? Or maybe you're in a matrix. Maybe you're dreaming right now. Don't you have dreams where you're sure in the dream that it's totally reality? You're positive, so everything's fine. And you're doing wacky things in the dream, like you're flying. But you're not even questioning where you're flying. You're like, yeah, I'm flying, and okay, I'm gonna land over there. Or your, your mom who's died, or somebody shows up, and you don't even question. You're like, oh, there's mom, whatever. Right, so maybe this is a dream too. <clears throat> so what do you know for sure all you can know is that at this moment right now you are having an experience something it feels like something to be you you're feeling things you're listening to my voice or not you're sitting on the chair stuff is happening experiences are happening and something is registering that that's what you know that's probably all that we know for sure Experiences are happening, whether they're happening in a matrix or not, it doesn't matter. We're having some kind, we're a conscious creature having an experience. And mindfulness is a form of consciousness. How's that for a long winded answer? So it's a type of consciousness that, um, you know, the present moment, even the present, what is the present moment? When you nail it, it's moved on. There is like no actual right now. It's always like past, I said the word, it's already past. You can't put your finger on. There's sort of an experience. And mindfulness is a kind of 
awareness that has certain qualities. So here I am describing something. It's like describing the chocolate, you know, that no one's tasted yet. It's got some curiosity to it. It's got de-identification in it. So you're like, hmm, here's this experience. This is not me. This is me experiencing something. So when you're having an angry thought, if you can sort of just be lost in the thought, like, I hate her guts, I hate her, and get all mad. But if you could see, ah, here I am experiencing anger. There's a world of difference between I'm experiencing anger versus I am angry. It sounds like nothing, the difference. I am angry, I'm experiencing, and yet it's huge. So in John Kabat-Zinn's definition, which is, paying attention in a certain way. It's paying attention with curiosity. It's paying attention in a way that de-identifies you so much. It depersonalizes without being depersonalized and floating free, sort of sees it as something that's happening to you and experience as opposed to I am the experience. And and there's other qualities. The other one I'll I'll stop with, don't worry, I will stop talking before 10 o'clock, is um, that it's got a quality of kindness. And I, I, and other qualities too. I've only said these three. There's other ones. Kindness. And I like kindness because it's not the same as being nice. Being kind and being nice are very different things, but people confuse them. So being nice means you're just trying to please somebody else, no matter what, even if it's not good for them. So if you see a small, if you have a small, my best example is if you have a small child, a three-year-old, and if you want to be nice to your three-year-old, you give them whatever they want. You know, they want five donuts for breakfast. Sure, sweetheart, whatever you want. Here's five donuts. I'm a nice parent, right? The kind parent goes, no, sweetheart, you can't have five donuts. The kid starts screaming and crying and goes, you're not nice, you're mean. Actually, that's the kind of thing most of us as, as kids have said to our parents, right? You're being mean. But the parent knows that out of love comes kindness. Kindness doesn't mean that everybody likes you, but it's the right thing to do. So being kind doesn't always mean that people are going to love you right away back. Big difference, and it takes courage to be kind, not nice. The good parent is kind and not nice. Anyway, kindness is the kind of quality of, of awareness of consciousness that is important also in mindfulness. So it isn't sort of a script, I'm gonna pay attention just like this, and I'm gonna, oh no, my mind drifted, God damn it, get back to the get back to the focus of the attention. I'm gonna, you know, it's with kindness, with self-kindness and with other kindness. So you're not just kind towards other people. You're kind to yourself too. Not nice to yourself, kind to yourself. Right? Nice to yourself is, give, is, is giving yourself, letting you eat whatever you want all the time. Feel good, feel good, feel good. Kind is, mm, I know I shouldn't overeat. So although I want to, I'm not going to do that. Okay, so that's my kind of very long expose on mindfulness definition. Thank you so much. And so if I understand correctly, kindness is a form of acceptance in some way also. Hmm. Kindness, form of acceptance. Acceptance of what? For example, like self-kindness, could we say that it's a form of self-acceptance in the way that you accept how you are without trying to judge yourself in the present moment and to just experience your feelings and your thoughts without putting a positive or negative judgment on them yes yeah here it is so even if you're hating yourself in the moment and you catch yourself going geez i'm full of self-critical feelings and thoughts i'm so stupid i'm such a dummy i'm such a bad parent a bad student i'm a bad daughter or whatever it is you you catch it that's the mindful moment oh 
I'm having that thought. I'm not a bad parent. I'm having a thought I'm, ha- I'm being a bad daughter, right? And you, you don't judge it as, and therefore I'm a bad person. That would be the bad judgment. You condemn yourself. To be judgmental is to condemn yourself. And I suck even more for having those thoughts. Look at I saw those. You make it even worse, right? But you do have judgment. You're not judgmental, but you have judgment. So you say, oh, here it is. You accept, as you've said, Melanie, you accept it. This is what it is. I don't like it that I'm having these thoughts. Uh, but I accept that that's what actually happened. And this is key. And now what am I going to do? So you don't just, so the example that people used to say to me, you know, what if a woman's being beaten by her husband or something? She's supposed to just accept that? Not quite. She's supposed to accept that that's actually happening. My God, he's beating me. This is what's happening. What am I going to do? I've got to get away. I've got to be safe. But the problem is mentally we play games. We pretend it's not really happening. He's not really beating me. He's just losing a bit of control or you make excuses. Or we're having an angry thought and we, we hate ourselves so much for the thought. We don't even accept that we're having the thought. We're like, no, no, I'm not having that thought. Let me just have, eat something and forget about it. So you're right. It is about accepting, which is really easier said than done. Because we're all busy all day long not accepting everything all the time. I'm a little, I'm a little bored. I can't accept this moment. I have to fill it with something else. I, I mean, we're constantly scratching an itch, right? So you nailed it exactly. It's acceptance without, without um, giving in or giving up. You know, it's like I, I see it. I recognize it. I acknowledge it. I accept it. And I can choose to do something about it. It's not resign, being, that's the word I was looking for. You're not resigning yourself. I'm not going, resignation. Oh, well, I accept it. What am I going to do? There's nothing I can do. I'm sucked. I'm just stuck in the situation. I accept it. I'm not resigned to it. I accept it. I see it. And now what am I going to do? And I think that is super important because, it's, as you said, you have to be aware of your feelings, of what you're experiencing, and be aware in a self, like a in a self-compassionate or self-kindness matter. And that allows you to have the space and um, uh, the, all of this self-compassion is going to have you the space to actually take and move forward and do what is right in that situation instead of sort of wallowing in that experience and the feelings that the experience is bringing you. So that's a really, really great point. And how did you um, start to become interested in mindfulness? Um, here's the short, short answer. I suffered enough. How's that? I just, like, I suffered enough to be desperate enough to go, I'll even try this wacky thing that I don't know what it is. I took a course at McGill, MBSR kind of course, mindfulness-based, uh, uh, stress reduction course, MBSR, because I was desperate. I know I suffered enough. I think most, many people come to this because you're just sick of, having fractious relationships with my mom, with my colleagues, with myself, with people that I love. I sputtered in anger and then I'd hate myself later and then busy hating myself. Just sort of, that's what I'm in by suffering. Okay, I don't mean that I'm on the rack uh, being, you know, like suffering is such a big word, but uh, uh, I think that's what brought me to it. It's just an awareness that nothing really satisfies. Like there's no, everything I was, going for you know if I just become a doctor if I just get the residency if I want if I just get the job I want if I just get married if I just have kids and, and you have you get all those things if you're lucky I've been so lucky and still there's something not okay 
there's still constant desire for something more, 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 and more, more, more. I mean, I remember in medical school, I didn't get into pre-med. I remember applying, I'm speaking because you guys remember this better than I will, but my experience is pretty clear in my head. I was like, I worked so hard in undergrad to do really well to get into med school. I'm like, I'm going to do so well that they're going to have to take me. God damn it. Miguel. And they did. And um, I got the letter in the mail. I remember this moment like it was yesterday. It was I don't know, 30 years ago or something. Um, and I was like, that's it. I'm done. I don't have to worry anymore. I'm a med student. I got in. I worked so hard. And now I'll just, I can do med school. I can do anything. I can do, I can work hard. I know how to do that. I don't have to worry about anything again. I came from a family of non-professionals. Like, you know, to me, the, like, the idea of being a doctor was like crazy in a way. My family encouraged me, but they have no idea what it means. Right. So um, it's like the, this is a song called At Last. Any of your listeners, you ever want to listen to it? At last, at last my time is, my worries are over. I've met my love of my life, and at last, I'm just going to be happy forever. Uh-huh. Well, you, you find a point in life where actually you see, like, I don't think I'm ever going to get there. So now what? And that's what brought me to mindfulness. And how did you go from becoming interested in mindfulness to getting involved in the mindfulness curriculum at McGill? Um. I didn't know there was a mindfulness curriculum at McGill until you asked me the question. I'm like, there's a mindfulness curriculum? Um, uh, well, what I was doing was I was getting really involved in, in um, serious practice myself, going on retreats, learning a lot, finding it incredibly helpful to everything, to my personal life and my professional life. There's no difference. I am who I am. I bring all my nonsense wherever I go all the stuff in my head. So whether I'm getting mad at my kids, but I can also get mad at my patients. I don't have to, they don't have to hear it, but they, they can see it or my colleagues, you know, people can tell, you know, we, we, we pretend that we're faking, but we know, people know when they're a well-grounded, happy doctor, everybody wants that. I want my doctor to be well. I had my, my doctor was often miserable complaining. Um, so what brought me to it was on my, my, I read often before I go to sleep at night and I, my, the books on the bedside table are all like, my, even now they're all mindfulness stuff. And I thought like, can I deviously find a way to, do what I want to do and make it part of my career. So like I can get paid and be doing the stuff I love to do anyway. I'm going to do it anyway, but do it in the daytime and bonus. Some people actually benefit from it. Maybe, you know, some of the students or whatever I'm betting from it, benefiting from it. My patients are not because I'm telling them what to do, but because I'm being a better doctor, I think. Okay. I'm not a great doctor, but I'm like a good doctor. I'm not bad but I can be better than my better version of myself as a doctor. So it was like a win, 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 win. You know, that thing about win, win nonsense, you know, this is one of those, can I find a way to get, you know, this into the medical curriculum? Cause there's nothing bad here. Like there's no, so that was what motivated me to get involved in this. And there was no mindfulness curriculum. We called it mindful medical practice when we presented it to the faculty. I don't think they knew. I still don't think they know what we're really doing. But but somehow we convinced them, and um, that was it. And uh, you talked about doing mindfulness um, like um, on a daily basis in your personal life. Um, how would you describe your practice of mindfulness in your day-to-day -day life? Um, just to clarify, I, not that I do mindfulness. I do practices meditation basically to help me be more mindful more often okay that's what i mean so i don't i'm not like practicing mindfulness 
so meditation is it's kind of like if you play the if you play instruments when you practice and you practice the same notes you know on a bass guitar over and over and over again or on a piano or something right you're uh are you playing music you're practicing so that you're better to play music afterwards right it's almost the same as exercise too like you exercise you weight train not because you're going to go out in the world and be lifting weights all day long because you want to be able to be more healthful and stronger and more functional in the other things that you're doing. So I kind of see meditation as practicing or exercising the mindfulness muscle by bringing myself back over and over again, countless times, no matter how I'm feeling, to be aware of what I'm feeling, which isn't fun. So it seems like everything I say to you is a long answer. But anyway, my personal practice is I, I, I sit, uh, Roughly five days a week, not always. I don't sit on the weekends in general. Um, briefly in the morning, and I've made it sort of part of my routine, like brushing my teeth. So if I have to get up and think about that, I want to meditate, I won't do it. I'll be like, I'm like, I don't want to. It's not about whether I want to or not. I know it's good for me, so I do it, even if it's super brief. So there have been times in my life where I've dropped it, or I haven't done it at all, and it hasn't gone well for me. I find that I do drift in the days. Um, but if I really don't want to do it, I'll do it for like five minutes. So I stick with the routine. It's like brushing your teeth. You know, I don't really want to brush my teeth, but I stop thinking about it after a certain point. I know it's good for me. I don't have to reconvince myself and re-go through the theory of teeth brushing every morning. I get it. It's good for your teeth. I'm just going to do it. It's the same with meditation. I get it. I seem to need some of it. I'm just going to do it. And uh, most of my resistance to doing it is because I just don't want to feel what I'm feeling anyway. And I know that that is the beginning of blocking out all kinds of things that I'm feeling and they'll come out in other unhelpful ways. I'll erupt at somebody or I'll, I won't enjoy them, you know, whatever. It's not about enjoying it for sure. It's not enjoyable all the time by any means. It's not about feeling great. It's about being aware of whatever you are feeling. So that's my personal practice. And I do go on retreats. I must say that longer retreats have been very helpful for me. I've gone about once a year for about a week, 10 days. They're silent retreats. If anyone wants to ask more about that, I can get into that. But I find finding that some concentrated period of practice, even to start with the weekend, which is what I started with, which was great, more than five minutes or 10 minutes. It's really hard. It's really challenging. It's a lot more fun to go, you know, on vacation. Fun. But it's it was really insightful and helpful. So I find regular retreats helpful. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you very much for those long answers. We really appreciate them. <laughs> um, Another question, actually, I wonder, do you sometimes, uh, you know, find moments or little ways to practice mindfulness in your clinical setting? Sometimes I think that that's actually helpful. Um, any tips that you have? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the problem with the tips is everybody loves the tips, like clickbait, 10 ways to be happier. Oh, I'm going to go on to that. Click, you know, da, da, da. So the tips, we teach this in an MMP course, Mindful Medical Practice course, right? The stop technique, stop, take a breath, observe, proceed. Actually, it's more like stop, observe your breath. Anyway, it doesn't matter, proceed. Um, so I have many moments of those during the days, but that's only been possible to happen by having a regular practice for me. If I don't regularly sit or do something regular, it sounds like a great idea, stop. Like, oh yeah, great, I'll wash my hands, I'll bring my attention to my hands while I'm you know, with the gel while we're doing that or on the doorknob, I'll uh, a momentary pause, just feel the doorknob. 
observe, proceed, go in. You know, no one has to see any of that stuff. I'm exaggerating it for, for, the, for this interview, but you know, it would be a stealth technique. I call them stealth techniques. Like no one knows you're secretly being mindful. You know, you're not floating through the wards. Oh, you're not at peace, la, 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 la. Obviously not, right? So, um, so I found many of those moments. Like when I'm walking, I walk to work and back every day. I don't live that far from the hospital. So I try and bring my attention to my feet, even for a few footsteps. So I'm doing it all the time. But it's only happened because I've cultivated kind of a practice. It's easy to say, but it's hard to remember. Just like I can, when I'm being very, when I'm calm and centered, like I kind of feel more or less now. I can't imagine ever getting mad again. I'm like, I, why would I ever get mad? That's so stupid. It's not helpful. It doesn't help me. And yet when I'm caught in those things, I'm lost. So that's my tip is find something on a regular basis that works for you. And, and one thing and practice it like as much as you can. If it's going to be the hand gel thing, even to notice the sensation of the warmth or coolness for one moment, then do that. Do that five times. Do it every time during a daytime. Or if it's but when you sit in your chair in front of your computer, if you take a moment to fix your posture, you're not like leaning in. The email that you're quickly writing, you're all crouched over like this, right? If you could just fix your posture, open up, and then write your email. You know, those are informal practices. Thank you for those tips. And um, now we're going to go to the part two of the podcast, which is more on uh, wellness and the culture in medicine. Um, so in your opinion, why is personal wellness and mindfulness important in, in medicine and also in palliative care? This is going to be one of those, oh my God, I'm so sorry we asked him this. He's not going to stop. I will stop eventually, but the wellness wellness. I think there's a lot of problems with the way wellness is being framed and it's being conflated that is mixed together as the same as mindfulness and they're not the same. The wellness movement, and I do feel like it's a movement. Every medical school has wellness. Every school has wellness. My daughter's in CJEP. There's a huge wellness office. There's a welcome to the first year's office. And there's lots of good about that. Because let me be clear, I'm not against the wellness. But I do think that the pendulum has swung from all the way from you're on your own, screw you, do the best you can. You know, and some people had resources and some didn't. All the way now to we are here for you, whatever your needs, and you need a lot of things. You need to be protected from speakers who might say things that actually you find uncomfortable. Oh my God, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen. So cancel culture now is a big thing. Some universities, a speaker is going to come that has an unpopular opinion. Students protest and don't let them speak. You know, this has happened a lot in the U.S., you can't talk. You can't know that uh, that opinion is unacceptable. So we're going to protect students from ever feeling anything uncomfortable. So the key word in the faculty everywhere is about comfortable. Are you comfortable? You're not comfortable. Oh my God, a student's uncomfortable. Pull the alarm bell, call the comfortable police. One student feels slightly uncomfortable with something somebody said. That person needs to be punished, uh, shamed, often fired in the U.S. so far. Maybe I'll be fired for this. You know, oh my God, a student's been uncomfortable. Now, I don't think we should make students uncomfortable. But the truth is that uncom being uncomfortable is something you need to learn to deal with also. So how, so the people that, let me point your listeners and even you guys, if you're interested to a book called The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt. I don't know if you've heard of it or not, he's an American psychologist. And uh, what's it, The Coddling of the American Mind, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure looking at my, and I read the book about a year ago. He's got great podcasts, Jonathan Haidt. He's simple to, uh, 
to find his last name is H A I D T, H A I D T, Jonathan, and his co author is Greg Lukanioff. But if you just just Google the coddling of the American mind, you'll find all kinds of stuff. And there's a great little podcast from everywhere. So he argues that we now created a culture where um, we have to protect students from everything, including ideas that might they may not like. Instead of creating more resilient students that are able to know how to argue and argue back um, so um, and are stronger. So I think we've gone so far in wellness that we're creating a culture where students, not all students, um, uh, no, but in general, there's some that are righteously angry all the time. This is wrong, this is wrong, and they're going to fix the world. It's good to, to feel you need to fix the world. The world is, needs a lot of fixing. But if you walk around mad all the time, that's your life. You're mad all the time. I do think that, and who wants to be mad all the time? It's not fun. I mean, it's got an energy. It's got a positive charge. Righteous anger has a positive charge. Nothing frightens me more than a mob chanting, you know, da, da, da. You know, I've seen some terrible things happen with mobs. Mobs freak me out. But um, like group human behavior, we're basically socialized apes, you know, humans, and we can act pretty wild when we're together. So anyway, I think there's a culture of safetyism where everything has to feel safe all the time. And I think that we really should be looking at how to make things safer, but they're never safe. So in class, one time a student said to me, you know, Dr. Lieben, you talked about double confidentiality and you talked about a safe space. And I said, I never said this is a safe. He said, it's not true. Students are always talking outside class. It's not safe. Students are gossiping about what happened. I'm like, I never promised this class would be safe. I will do my best to make this not an aggressive class to make it obviously, but you might be able to hear things that you don't want to hear or that you find uncomfortable. And the only way we can make it safe is if we all together make it safe. I can't police the students in the elevators that are breaking confidentiality. I can't promise safety all the time. If your definition of safety is you'll never feel uncomfortable by what somebody says. And I wouldn't want a university environment where people never feel uncomfortable with different ideas or when people are shouted down for saying things they don't agree. I don't agree with some horrible ideas that are out there, but I don't think we should be muzzling people because they'll find other ways to come out. Anyway, that's the long answer I warned you about, more or less, a bit, on, a bit of a rant there for sure. Uh, so wellness, important, but the pendulum has swung too far to try and protect students. The kind of parable that, that comes to mind is, you know, do you wanna have, you know, the world is full of rocks and things we walk on that are sharp, that hurt our feet. Do you wanna put leather across the whole world or do you wanna learn how to put on shoes, right? I want students to learn how to put on shoes, to learn how to handle and call out what needs to be called out, but not call out everything just because they're slightly uncomfortable with an idea. They need to learn how to argue back, how to listen to what's unpopular, because it never works to force people things. It comes out in other ways. And we see a movement in the U.S. right now of totalitarianism, of bullyism, of the president, and all this other nonsense, a whole dark side coming out because we're trying to repress any negative idea of any kind. Okay, enough with that. I'll stop. Yeah, no, thank you. And I guess um, it's true, like, what needs to be called out needs to be called out. Uh, but at the same time, it sort of brings up this resilience that that we learn over experiences like this. Um, and I wonder, what challenges do medical students and residents face in terms of, of the wellness that we've described during their medical education that needs to be brought to light? Well, instead of saying, like, like, what are the challenges, I would say that I see something that we can do. It's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to build my own capacity to be with 
unwanted thoughts, unwanted feelings, and unwanted sensations. If I build that capacity, which is what mindfulness is, it's a capacity to hold things that I don't want to hold. Because when I don't want to hold them, I go to the refrigerator, have a cookie, a tea. I go onto Facebook because I'm bored. I ignore this patient a little bit because I don't want to see that patient. I prefer other patients. Well, this is an interesting case. This isn't an interesting case. That's in medicine, right? That's a colleague I want to work with, right? So improving my capacity to hold the negative experiences, which life has, because we're always wanting things to be one way and they're never that way. We're always getting things we don't want and not getting things we do want. The two huge categories. You spend your whole life trying to get what you want. You're busy getting what you want, even shopping. If I just get the sweater, oh, it's going to be so great. I'm going to look great. I'm gonna... And then you buy it and you're like, yeah, you're bored with it three seconds later and you're on to the next thing. So that's getting what you want. Or there's not getting, or, or, or you're busy setting up what you don't want. I don't want to get into arguments, so I'll just placate everybody. Or I, I don't want to get people upset at me, so I'll get good marks or something, right? So you're doing those two things all the time. But if you can build your capacity to handle the things that you don't want, because they're going to happen no matter what. The world doesn't care what you want. The world is what it is. COVID-19 has come. Whether we want it or not doesn't matter. You cannot believe it. It's still here. So the question is, how can we increase our capacity to hold all the horrible thoughts that it generates, the fears, the lying awake at night, scared of loss? How can we increase that capacity? That's what interests me, because we can increase our capacities. That's what meditation is for. It's for learning how to increase your capacity to hold all this stuff. And the little metaphor is, you know, you have a glass of water, and you take a big tablespoon of salt, and you put it in the water. You mix it up, and you drink it. Ugh. Very salty, right? If you take a teaspoon, have you heard this parable already? If you take a tablespoon of salt instead of a glass of water, you put it into a lake, right? And you drink the water from the lake, you can't taste the salt, right? What's the salt? Melanie, what's the salt? What does salt represent? I guess it's more like your like negative thoughts, for example, that you might have. Yeah, it's and like then, everything you don't want. Go yeah. ahead. And then the lake is more like putting your thoughts into perspective rather than the glass where you're maybe like focusing on your negative thoughts on this person or that thing. Exactly. So the salt is everything you don't want. It's right there in the teaspoon. Everything you don't want, there it is right there. And the container is your ability to hold it. It's, it's thoughts, yes, because they're the most sticky, but it's also even sensations, chronic pain patients, right? If you've ever had pain, right? You don't want it, right? You rail against it. The thoughts come up as relate, related to that. But if you can make your container bigger, which is why it was worked with chronic pain at the beginning, there's still the same salt, but it's being diluted in a much bigger container. Your capacity to hold it is better. And somebody who has like anger management issues, for example, who the minute something doesn't go right, they flip off in crazy anger. There's somebody with a very small container. So we can build our container and make it as good as it can be, and then be kind to ourselves, which actually makes the container bigger by being kind to ourselves. It's interesting. It feeds it's a positive feedback loop. I even forget the question you asked at this point. <laughs> it's good. And actually, it brings me to the next point really naturally, which is if we, if we increase that container, uh, increase our capacity like that, what benefits can we concretely see? Um, does it help? Is it useful in preventing physician or student burnout? Um, is it beneficial for when we see patients? Um, what, do we, what do we see? Yes and yes. I, I got to say the whole burnout thing um, 
let's put it this way. Your goal, Salima, your goal as a physician is your goal. What I want to do is I want to not get burned out. Is that your goal? Is that it? Nothing more? It's not your only goal, right? It's a, no, not it's a, really. <laughs> not really, right? What's your, what's your goal? What kind of a doctor do you want to be? Just a not burned out doctor? Can you just say what kind of doctor you want to be? I have to say, uh, especially when I entered medical school, the burnout thing was not part of the picture at all, and I didn't even think of it. It was more, I want to be the kind of doctor that will do good with my patients, uh, that my patients can rely on, things like that. That was more patient-focused. <laughs> yeah, patient-focused, and there's nothing wrong with being self-focused also. Like, I want to be a hot... First of all, what kind of doctor do you want, Melanie? Do you want your doctor who hates where he's working or she's working, or you want a doctor that's like, hey, hi, Melanie. It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it. It's pretty obvious, right? People want doctors that are happy to be there. Doctors to come and go, God damn it, this hospital won't support anything and I can't. Okay, what's your, why are you here? No, who wants that doctor, right? You want a doctor who's present, who's like, hi. Hi, Melanie, how are you today? You know, um, what brings you to the office today? Uh, let's see if I can be, might be helpful in some way, right? You want some doctor that actually you can see they like what they're doing, right? So Salima, it's okay to say that you're patient focused, but you're also yourself focused. That's one of the one win wins, right? Happy doctor, happy patient. Not always, of course, but at least you cannot add to their misery by being a miserable person in your life, right? Nobody wins. So our goal isn't to not be burnt out. I think not being burnt out is like really good, but that's like the far end of the spectrum. That's like 10 out of 10 miserable, right? But I actually want to be positive. I want to be, I want way more than not being burnt out. I want to be, this is my life. You know, you go to work, this podcast is your life right now. You know, it could all end in a, in a moment, life. And this is it right now. So I want to be as present as I can for the mess that life is, because life isn't all positive experiences. We wouldn't be human beings if we were always happy all the time. Someone else happy all the time is locked up in an insane asylum. They're laughing all the time. I mean, it's not, not normal human behavior. So um, I think it has a lot to offer us personally and professionally, I think it's naturally anti-burnout, but I, I, I find a bit of a sell. Like we're trying to sell mindfulness that it would be anti-burnout anti and stuff like that. I think there's way more to it than that. I also think there's way more that, to mindfulness than, I mean, I've been doing this for 15 years and I always am learning new things. I'm reading a book by Charlotte Joko Beck right now, and she's just amazing. She died a couple of years ago, but I, I, I never stop learning this stuff. It's amazing how it speaks to me. And I learn new definitions of mindfulness all the time. So I think it's got a ton to offer. And I'm hoping some of the students that get the course, some of them will see something of use for it and continue on their own path. Like, you know, there's many ways to go about this, whatever this is, the mindfulness thing. So find your own path. Try some stuff. Doesn't work for you. Try something else. See what works. And uh, uh, so, so we touched base like, like a little, little bit on mindfulness and how we can translate it onto clinical grounds. And, and now for the part three, uh, we wanted to explore with you the role of mindfulness and how to cope in palliative care and with grief. And so uh, to start, how would you define grief? Yeah, uh, I'm not a grief expert, actually. Um, you know, palliative care there's there are people that study grief there's a whole scholarly field of grief work i'm not a i'm not that's not the work that i'm in uh having said that i'm a human being so i experience grief right every time we lose something that has matters to us we feel grief um and um 
Yeah, I mean, so I, I don't want to speak as if I'm a palliative care um, grief expert because I'm not. I don't do a lot of bereavement support. I do some, do very, you know, I, but there's grief scholars and all that kind of thing. And so I, I feel like it's outside of my area of expertise and sort of talking about it as some sort of grief expert, but I'm not. Let's put it that way. Okay, perfect. Um, and um, sometimes um, students can hear about like normal healthy grief from abnormal grief so we were wondering if um, you could help us making the distinction between what is considered more like clinically normal healthy from abnormal yeah i think i think it's uh i feel like this is the public service announcement part of of this podcast for me like I, I'm again, I'm not an expert in it, but I feel a responsibility as a physician and a palliative care physician to give an answer and not just say, I don't, you know, I'm not an expert. So I'm going to have to say something, right? So there is something called complicated grief. It's very hard to say what's normal and not normal, you know, like giving time, how long you're supposed to feel bad and not feel bad. There are definitions in a DSM for complicated grief, be it, you know, and it's more functional definitions. So it's not so much how much you're missing somebody or how often you're thinking about them but are you able to function in society afterwards? So it's a very operational definition. Complicated grief is when it's prolonged dysfunction. They say greater than six months or a year, but maybe some people need two years. You know, you lose your child or whatever, maybe you need three years. I don't know. You know, I, so I, 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 I'm kind of um, like, I don't like the exact definition of the time. It's too simple. You know, people are not that simple. But having said that, there's some clear indications when grief is going off the rails, right? Someone is no longer eating and drinking. They're becoming suicidal. They're having dark thoughts. They're they're not they're not they're not functioning in a way that's even keeping them alive. Their risk for their health clearly complicated, and that's going on for more than a couple of days or something. So people can look it up. You can look up complicated grief. There are psychiatric sort of definitions of it and all that. But the basic thing is that we shouldn't be judging people who. Let me put it to you this way: in pediatric palliative care, I've learned. I think I learned this from somebody, Balfour Mountain, so many years ago that when he asked the mom, you know, um, many years later, you know, when you, with grief, has it gotten better with time? And she said, you know, no. Um, when I feel it, I feel it like I go from zero right up to 100 again. I just don't feel it as often as I did before, but I do feel it. And the pain doesn't go away. It's still there. The loss is still there. I just don't feel it all the time, every moment. But heartache like that heart-wrenching heartbreaking doesn't go away so i don't want us to judge people that first of all if you're going to work in palliative care i think if you're working in medicine actually you better get comfortable with people who are crying i'm crying it's one of those things you know i remember way back in the old old hospital being called on the oncology ward you'll call me the nurse is calling she says somebody's in mom's crying really you know you need to come right away palliative care someone's crying it's not what palliative care is but anyway because I, why is she crying because her son was just diagnosed with something terrible so like it sounds like maybe crying is the appropriate thing to do like that's about us building a container where we can be comfortable with our uncomfortable feelings this nurse felt bad for this mother and was feeling bad herself and that's okay but trying to fix it right away you know we try and fix things oh it's okay you'll be fine it's okay you'll have other kids that's not the kind of thing people want to hear what do they want to hear I'm here with you. If that's helpful, I'm so sorry you're going through this. I'm so sorry. I, I, something like that. I don't know, but they don't want to hear it's going to be better. That's for sure. Um, 
anyways that's my answer to that so basically how you're like what you're saying is that to help for example like families patients to cope with grief is to is to let them like accept their emotions rather than trying to label it as a as a, everything is going to be okay is that is that correct well not get them to accept because you can't get anybody to accept anything good luck with that you know if you're really uh really anxious melanie one day right i see you and you're on the ward and you're like super anxious and i go to you melanie calm down are you gonna go oh whew, thank you dr Levin. i you know i am just so calm i that was great i just needed to, can't make anybody do anything i can barely make myself do anything right so instead of making the person in grief accept their feelings accept your own feelings that are happening in response to their grief because we don't like to be around because we you know when someone's grieving it's uncomfortable for us why is it uncomfortable because we know that that could be us in a second one phone call from your parents that someone you love has died or is suddenly sick we all live knowing that existentially we can't count on anything nothing anything could happen anytime we know it cognitively, it's too much to handle emotionally, so we try and forget about it. We make plans, I'll see you at Christmas. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. You know, the truth of it is we don't really know. So when someone, when we see someone with a lot of loss, it triggers that uncertainty in us that we know is uncertain. Always we just put it on the back burner. And it becomes very uncomfortable. And we just want them to feel better. Why? So we can feel better, that they feel better. I need you to stop crying so I can feel better. We don't think those thoughts exactly, but if you look at what's going on, that's mostly what's going on. So if you want to be helpful to people that are grieving, increase your capacity to tolerate your own and accept your own unwanted thoughts. And they will be with somebody who's comfortable in, with someone who's uncomfortable. And that might be helpful to them. They'll have, they won't feel so alone. It feels very lonely when someone's grieving to go, when someone comes, oh, that's okay, X, Y, Z, this is going to happen. You just feel more alone. They're not, they're not listening to you. you. You don't want to hear words that are going to make you feel better. There are no words, right? You just need someone to be with you. So what can you do? You can increase your capacity. Now, how can you increase your capacity? How can you increase your capacity? I'm asking you guys. How do you think you can increase your capacity? By the way, the answer, I don't know. Or I don't know. Or you're supposed to answer the questions, Doctor Lieben. It's also fine. I don't, you don't have to. We're not medical student um, structured down. Like, oh, so Lieben, give me the five reasons why you can feel better right now. No, but seriously, how could we increase our container? Is that what we've been talking about? Yeah, I think you know it. It comes down to creating a. I think what you said about the daily practice, for example, it, it really makes sense because it sort of creates a baseline of awareness of. Um, so that during, when those moments happen, you're more equipped to actually see that you are feeling comfortable or recognize it, um, and then move from that awareness, right? Um, and the other thing too is that especially the first few years of, of medical school when everything is so new, this seeing grief is, is going to be new for many medical students. And often it's uncomfortable, we, we don't know what to do. It feels that whatever we do, even, you know, being here, sometimes it's, it's not enough. And the truth is, it's that even being there sometimes is not going to be enough because it's, it's something that we have to experience, right? It's this unfortunate situation has happened and 
um, what you can do is just try to be there with them, try to um, offer them the, the support. But truth is, it's, it's going to be a, a bad situation. And, and that's that, unfortunately. And you're going to be good. You're going to be good for somebody because somebody who, what you just said is exactly right. They need to go through the experience. You can't cut it short with some things to say. And being with somebody who knows that, that's key. Like when you think of your own life, anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you think of your own life, when something goes really wrong for you, you have a heartbreak or something really wrong. I don't mean something easily fixable. Like if your tire breaks in your car, you call and you get your tire fixed. I'm talking about the kind of stuff that isn't so fixable or isn't fixable at all, right? Like losing somebody you love, for example, right? Who do you call that person? And, and, and you think of the person you might call to talk to about it. What do you want from that person? What are you looking for in that person? You're looking for what you just said, Salima. You're not looking for somebody who's going to say, it's going to be fine, don't worry. Although maybe you want to hear that sometimes and just block it out. You're looking for somebody who can hear you, can hear your pain. And somehow hearing your pain makes it maybe a little bit less painful, but it's still painful. As you said, Salima, it's still going to hurt. But the person you're talking to knows that. They're not trying to make you feel better. Okay, so you're all feel better now. You're all better. Everything's perfect. Oh, yeah, I'm absolutely perfect. It's not true, right? So, yeah, that's really good. And it's and also just to, to add one last thing um, that you guys brought up, like silence is also sometimes even more powerful than talking. For example, with someone coping with grief. And if I may add one last thing, it's um, it's that it's normal that seeing those types of situations will bring emotions in us, as you said, right? Um, you know, first of all, everything is so new in the hospital, and some may not uh, have much experience. And um, actually, being aware of those emotions that it brings in us and uh, this is what helps us sort of uh, be more equipped for the next time. Because fortunately, you know, do, doing the work that we do, there will be a next time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that brings us to sort of the, the last part of our, our podcast, uh, which is more with what's happening right now with the pandemic. Um, so can you comment on if... Uh, your mindfulness practice has been helpful to you during this pandemic. I don't know if, if uh, it has been you know difficult in your case or if it has brought up um, you know in a sense of uh, uncertainties. Um, how was that helpful? Um, well, I wish I could believe what I'm about to say. I'm about to say it's great to have a big uh, challenge because you got you can really practice. But I'm not happy to have the challenge of COVID though, so that's why it's not true, right? But here it is, right? Uh, there's a saying, you know, the obstacle is the path. There's no obstacles on the path. The obstacle is the path. So this will feed into, you know, what what can I? So I look at it like not at first, by the way. First, the reactive mind has to calm down, and that took several weeks in June of, of having nightmares and work. The anxiety I was ramped up. I mean, we were, it was, you know, and it's sort of starting up. I'm having a little PTSD actually lately because since yesterday, it's all ramping up again at the hospital. The meetings are turning back to COVID again. We're opening our COVID ward and pediatrics. And so I'm kind of going through that again, the reactive part again. But the responsive part is that this is another opportunity to practice. 
So it's sort of like in the morning when I don't want to get up and sit because I just don't want to. Um, this is another, I don't want COVID. I don't want all the waves disrupting my life, but it is my life and it is what's happening now. And the question is, what can I do with this? Well, the first thing is, is I can recognize that I don't like it. I can recognize the thoughts, feelings, and emotions that it brings up. And I can try and hold them and use distraction intelligently too. So it's not like I'm just trying to be a masochist and just try and think about it all the time. No, actually, I filter in the news that I take. I don't go onto Facebook as often or actually at all anymore. And I don't, not at all. It's not true. I do go on sometimes. I'm filtering my news. Like I told myself, don't watch the debate, the presidential debate the other night, and I did, and I couldn't sleep after, so disturbed. And so I need to be better at filtering and not even allowing into my, you know, the reading the headlines and going back to what's actually happening now. Like that's all theoretical, but what's actually happening is I'm sitting in this chair, I'm talking to you. That's what's happening. I'm feeling what I'm feeling. There's Everything else is theoretical, but this is what's actually happening right now. Um, so I found it um, like a lifeline, actually, to have this. I don't know what I would do. Otherwise, otherwise I'd just be trying to fix everything all the time. And I am trying to fix things all the time, like everybody else. But I know the futility of it, and I let go of it sometimes. And I go, all right, well, this is what it is. You know, Ultimately, that's where our lives come down to, right? We're all going to die, no matter what we do. You can't fix everything. Eventually, everything breaks, and you die, no matter what you do. So if you're going to look at it like... How can I enjoy or be present to what life does have to offer while I'm living? It's going to end anyway. It actually frees up your life instead of being so worried that I have to control everything. I know I can't. Yeah, so it's it's basically that in order to, what helps us in those moments of uncertainties is to recognize that all of this is uncertain. And um, the only thing that I can do is be present, is to... Um, do what I can do right now and if there's something I can fix then great if not then it's 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 what it is it's sort of coming down to acceptance of the situation um, and it's true you know the more you accept it it frees you up to actually do what you need to do at the moment thank you Dr. Langdon my pleasure thank you so much uh, Dr. Lieben for sharing your your wisdom and your experience um, a last question is for um, for those who are listening and might be interested in uh, following into your steps in mindfulness, are there any resources like books, websites, or retreats that you would recommend for them? Yeah. So just to be, just to, I'm being so pedantic with you, uh, Melanie, because it's following my footsteps. I just want to correct the words. No one's going to follow my footsteps. You follow your own footsteps, you know? So it's like, uh, to be the kind of person you want to be and to find your own path. So I can tell you the kind of things that I've walked in and the kind of paths I've headed on to sort of see what's available for you, right? Kind of make it like a buffet and you choose what works for you and you choose what feels right at this time, right? Because nothing works for everybody, right? So um, uh, what resources? I found for meditation retreats, there's a place called IMS, Insight Meditation Society. I have no affiliation with these, by the way. I'm not making any money off of them or I have no commercial association, zero. But um, IMS in Barrie, um, Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society, you can Google it. It's a five-hour drive from Montreal. Excellent retreat center, uh, highly uh, ethical and um, secular, um, very, like the Buddhist-ish. Like I'm Jew-ish. You know what I mean? I'm Jewish by birth, but I'm Jewish. 
emphasis on the ish they're boot ish you know um and um anyway so that's been one very helpful resource books are very there's millions of books and websites and things i mean there's so much that's helpful um, um i'm hoping to run some retreats myself some very beginner kind of stuff uh you know wants to go into that uh, I've done absolutely nothing with that since COVID. Absolutely zero. If you signed up from a newsletter, you're still you're still waiting six months later to get one. I felt like the last thing anybody needs is another newsletter. So um, anyway, uh, and uh, yeah, there's so many resources now that there weren't. I just signed up for a mindfulness and healthcare summit actually that starts tonight, free. Um, like there's all this, like once you start getting into these listservs or these mails, you get, there's like tons of stuff. It's amazing compared to even 10 years ago. So there's lots of stuff out there. And I would encourage people to try things, but not just reading books. Books I found helpful after I've had some kind of experience. Sure, it can get you interested, but the cognitive isn't, it isn't all there is to life and there isn't all to this or anything else. You got to taste that chocolate bar and not just read about chocolate bars at a certain point, you know? Thank you so much. So it was Dr. Stefan Lipen, pediatrician in palliative care at the Montreal Children's Hospital. And it was Salima Ramdani and Melanie Lang. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye.